verses 18 through 22, calling for thunder and stone. This will be the second installment. And so this morning, when we turn again our consideration to the beginning of Christ's ministry in Matthew chapter 4, it is safe to say that the kingdom of heaven in the midst of the kingdom of this world is both hard and dangerous. And while there is no doubt that it will be the hardest and the most dangerous for Christ, it is still exceedingly hard for those who are called after him. Though they do not carry the weight, the burden, or the authority that he carries by any means, the reality is, is he is omnipotently and eternally equipped. And men are not. Men are called to do that which they are not capable of doing. And so we see him calling his first disciples to himself. We see him calling the brothers Andrew and and Simon and James and John. He calls them personally. He calls them particularly. He even will call them sons of thunder and stone. For there is great glory to come in their ministry. In Matthew chapter 16 and verses 15 through 18, Matthew records that our Lord asked them a question Peter responds, and Christ says that the response is not of him, but instead of the Father and what the Son is doing. Jesus said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, one he would call stone, he replied and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Man, there's a lot of stuff that I would love to have got to bore witness of. That is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, but I got to tell you, that one ranks high at the top of my list. Peter looks at Jesus when he says, Who do you say I am? And he says, That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, upon this confession, Upon this thing that my Father is putting in you, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. These are the men that will turn the world upside down. He calls for the sons of thunder and stone, for Andrew and Peter, for James and John, For the men who will stand up at Pentecost and proclaim the gospel to a world who is empowered to understand it in its fullness for the first time. To the man who will be in exile in Patmos on the Lord's day. When a door in heaven is opened. They will turn the world upside down. But it is a bare minimum of three years down the road. And there is a lot that is going to occur between those events and the events that happened this day at their calling beside the Sea of Galilee. And so when you read all of the synoptic gospels, you find more than any of the other ones, Matthew omits much. Matthew omits much concerning the call of Andrew and Peter and James and John. 
He omits the previous testimony by John the Baptist to Andrew that Jesus is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He admits the record that Andrew and another disciple followed after Christ for the day and spent the day with him and that Andrew even went back and spoke to his brother Peter and said, we have found the Christ. Matthew in his record omits the spectacular nature of the events of that day on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus, being pressed hard by the crowd, ends up in their boats preaching to the people. And as he is calling them, tells them after a night of fruitless fishing to throw their nets out on the other side of the boat only to see them bursting under the weight of the hull. Matthew instead focuses on the critical components of the effectual call of Christ. Matthew focuses on that which is of utmost and necessary importance upon that which all of this business of being fishers of men hangs. In Matthew chapter 4 in verse 18 through 22 it says that while walking by the sea of Galilee he saw two brothers Simon who is called Peter and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen and he said to them follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Matthew focuses simply on the command of Christ for these men to follow after him so that when later, when all things seem impossible, when they are doing that which they were called to do, that they are not capable of doing, and in the darkest moments, when it seems out of their reach, they will know that from the very beginning it was not about them, but instead about what Christ is doing in them and through them. It's so they will remember what he said in John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Now, if you want to talk about grace proof text, that's a great one. But what is amazing to me in the empowerment of the ministry is what Jesus says next. Not only was it not you that chose me, but I chose you. But I chose you for a particular purpose, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. I chose you, boys. You didn't choose me. But it's not just that. I chose you for particular ordained purpose. And it's this, that this ministry will indeed bear fruit. That I will indeed establish my church. That the gates of hell will indeed not prevail against it. That you will indeed turn the world upside down. That you won't just be fishers of men, but you will actually be catchers of them. And so he concludes by saying, so whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. When the men and women of God find themselves in the moments of hardest pressing where they understand beyond the shadow of a doubt because what is before their eyes that they have been called to do something that they have no ability whatsoever to do, it is this on which hope and confidence hangs. That it is Christ's doing. That it is Christ's choice. And then it will be Christ that ensures it 
to the end. And so he commands them to come. Oh, man, he commands him. It's omitted in the English. That we don't even translate it for whatever reason. I don't know, but it is powerful in the Greek. Literally, before he says, follow me, the first thing Jesus says is, here. The word literally means, it's very simple, it means here. It's an exclamation and it's an imperative. He is not calling out to them. He is commanding them. Here. Here. Come to your Lord. Here. Come to your Creator. Here. Come to your Master. Here. Come to your Savior. Here. Come to the One who will redefine the meaning of your being. It's an imperative and it's an exclamation. And it is one of those words that can just, in the Greek or in the English, it can just stand on its own. It's the kind of thing that is exclamatory. It interrupts the conversation that is going on. I don't know what those boys were talking about that day. I don't know if they were talking about the, the crowds that were pressed up against the shore. I don't know if they were talking about the nature of mending nets or how pitiful the fishing had been the night before. But at this moment, all attention turns to him. Here. Here. The greatest blessing that you will ever receive. The greatest joy that you can ever know is when Jesus Christ interrupts whatever else is going on in your world with an exclamatory statement directed at you that says right here. That's what he's calling them to do. The first thing that Jesus calls these men to do is not to be fishers of men. The first thing he calls them to do is, is not to be sons of thunder in a rock. The first thing he calls them to do is not preach to the masses and see 3,000 added in one day. The first thing he calls them to do is come to his side. Here. Actually, he doesn't call them to come to his side. We'll get to that in a minute. He calls them to come to his back. So if they are called to come here, what particularly are they to do once they get there? Because the first thing Jesus tells them, while it's kind of the iconic statement, I will make you fishers of men, that's not the first thing Jesus tells them to do. The command is to come here and then to follow me. To follow me. It's an interesting turn of the phrase. It works in the English, but there's some some nuance and some depth there that we probably ought to explore just a little bit. In the Greek, the idea means after or behind. And so if you have someone that's not standing still but is moving through their daily life and you say, come here after me, behind me, then the concept is come and follow me as I go about doing what I do. Come behind me as I'm being about the business, in this case, of his father. If you want to, if you want to translate it just, into the, just to the bare bones, he says, here after me. Here. And come after me. I will go ahead and you will follow after. I think this morning we ought to take just a little bit of time to unpack exactly what Christ means when he says that. Because the command is clear, here, 
Okay, I'm here. What do you want me to do now that I'm here? The first thing I want you to do is come after me. And then I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something in you where I make you fishers of men. But first, come and follow. Come and follow after me. And so what does it mean to follow after Christ? Specifically, what does it mean for these men to follow after Christ the way that they're being commanded to follow after Christ? What does that mean? Because we have ideas in our culture today about what that means. And we understand that, that Christ is, you know, the center of this thing called Christianity. And it has all sorts of it, it has all sorts of cultural things that have been attached to it over the years and things that we think, especially here in the West, that a Christian looks like. And so, you know, if I'm going to follow after Christ and there's certain things I got to do, there's certain ways I got to act, you know, I've got to have a fish sticker on the back of my car, whatever the case may be, right? And you can make the whole list and give people a hard time. We're not going to do that this morning. But what does it mean for these guys? Because when you start considering what it means for four Galilean fishermen two millennia ago, it forces you to start stripping away the things that we have co-opted, that we think it means for us, that is really just our cultural baggage attached to the gospel. What does it mean for them? Well, it says in verse 21 that going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them here... And immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him. So for these guys, man, the first thing you got to say is the one that is the most obvious. They followed after his presence and his person. And so these guys are going to follow Jesus to a lot of places. They're going to follow Jesus to Jerusalem. They're going to follow Jesus into Samaria. They're going to follow Jesus to, to, to the tomb of a dead man that's going to smell after four days. Peter is going to follow Jesus out of the boat and onto open water. But the first place that they follow Christ is literally down the beach and away from their boats and their father. That's the first place they follow him, is down the beach. You say, well, what does that mean for us today? Because the reality is, is Christ is ascended on high and sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's not walking down the beach in his person that I may follow after him. Scripture teaches us that through the Holy Spirit, and we'll get to that more in just a minute, that we follow him today by abiding in him. In John chapter 15, verses 9 through 11, Jesus says that as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. It means to, to be somewhere with the concept of rest of permanence of you know it's like when you when you finally after a long day get down in that recliner you know and you just kind of uh, to be at home abide in my love if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as i've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love these things i've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full and so if we're going to follow after Christ in the manner that they followed after his person, then we must do that by being at rest in him and abiding in him. And scripture talks about all sorts of disciplines that are connected to that. Prayer, time in the word, fellowship. Man, you can't abide in Christ without that stuff. Keeping the commandments out of love would be the most particular to John chapter 15. This is particular and this is personal. 
When Jesus was on earth, he was in one particular place at one particular time. His ministry moved where the Father had ordained for it to go, and so too it is this way today. And it would do the people of God well when abiding in Christ to listen closely to specific ordained moments that God has for us. There's places we need to be, people we need to speak to. Now, does that mean that just because, and see, you always got to back this stuff up, because then you'll use it as an excuse in your flesh to not ever speak to anybody unless the, the lightning bolts drop and the sky splits, right? Man, there is always time to talk about the gospel to anyone who will listen. Always time to talk about the gospel to anyone who will listen. But the reality is, and you've been there, there are ordained moments when God says, you go there because that's where I'm going. And you speak to them about me. They followed after his presence. We would do well to do likewise. But they weren't just following after his presence. When he says, here, after me, there's at least a second way. There's at least a second way that they were coming after him, that they were following after him. And that is this, in being in his presence and under his teaching, they were being fundamentally changed to be conformed into his image. They were following after him and that they were becoming like him. You guys are very familiar with Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So talking about the process of salvation that includes a lot of events that begins in eternity past and concludes in eternity future. The Lord begins with the foreknowing, the, the, the intimate heart of God for his people and immediately moves on to predestination. And before he ever talks about the call that is occurring in Matthew chapter 4, before he ever starts talking about the call that is typically the first time that the Lord is really truly on any of our radar. Because all of this stuff of foreknowledge and predestination occurred in eternity past when we didn't even exist. But the call is the first thing that men are aware of. Christ begins to call to them and say, here. But before the call ever comes, that for which they were predestined to, is set in the heart and the mind of God. And it's, it, it's not to, to, to make the gates of heaven instead of the gates of hell, even though that is certainly attached. It's, it's not to have a, you know, a gold mansion that's silver lined. It, it, you're not predestined to, to, you know, you're not predestined to sit on a cloud and strum a harp. What we are predestined to primarily is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. When the Lord says, look, I'm going to do something with this person because my heart is for them. And I'm going to set and speak destiny over them. The goodness of what he speaks is nothing less than the intention of conforming his people into the image of his own son. And friend, if he spoke anything less over you than that, then it would be hateful to you compared to that. He has spoken the greatest destiny that any creature can ever know over his church and his people when he says, here's what you're predestined to. You're predestined to be conformed to look like my son. And so, in service of the heart of God comes the call of God. 
He did this that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And here they are being called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so, once again, it brings us back to the simplicity of what Matthew is doing here. He's not talking about the bells and whistles. He's talking about that which will get you through when nothing else will get you through. And that's this. If Jesus called my name, I am going to be conformed. It is going to end in glorification. Doesn't matter what it looks like. Doesn't matter how impossible it is. As a matter of fact, Jesus told me it would be impossible. He said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so if it was possible for him to call a wretch like me, then no matter what the circumstances look like between now and glorification, and no matter how painful it is to be squeezed into the mold that is conformity to Christ, it will be okay because God is faithful and God is able. He is faithful and he's able. They're being conformed to his image. Come and follow after Christ in this respect means that we no longer think the way that Brian Williams wants to think. We no longer feel the way you want to feel. We no longer act the way you would choose to act. But instead, we're being conformed to him. We are being changed, we're being transformed. Not according to this world, but according to the kingdom of heaven and according to the image of Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, and verse 21 through 22, Jesus will say this, talking about changing the way you think. He says, you've heard it said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brothers will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brothers will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says, you think a certain way and you've thought this way generationally throughout your culture. It is ingrained in you. This is the way your brain computes. And I'm telling you, it's time to think a different way. It's time to think a different way. Jesus says it's not enough to only think a different way. He expects you to feel a different way as well. We just read out of John chapter, John chapter 15 about abiding in Christ. He says, man, I say all this to you. Why? So that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is what submission to Christ looks like. This is what conformity to Christ looks like. You don't get to think your way anymore. You start thinking his way. You don't get to feel your way anymore. You start feeling his way. Friends, let me assure you something, even though it's hard, and believe me, man, my flesh will fight it. The reality is, is his way of feeling and his way of thinking is a lot better than my way of feeling and my way of thinking is a lot better than your way of feeling and your way of thinking. It is a blessing to be conformed to Christ. It is not a burden. We no longer act our way. We keep his commandments, not our own. And so it is, it is very clear to say, what does it mean when Jesus says, here, after me? Well, the first thing is to go where he's going, to abide in him. The second thing is to allow what he is doing in that abiding, in that fellowship, have its day and to conform you to him in your thinking, in your feeling, in your doing. These men are being taught by him. They're being taught what not to think. They're being taught what to think. They're being led by him into being something different than what they are. It's the whole point of what he's saying. Of course they're being conformed to him. They were fishers of fish. 
But when he's done with them, they're going to be fishers of men. Which I would submit to you is as fundamentally different as the East is from the West. They're being shaped. They're being molded. They're being taught. They're being discipled. What does it mean to follow? It means to go where he goes and then allow his presence to have the effect on you that he has ordained it to have. But there is one last way that it means to follow after him that I think we haven't considered yet this morning. The statement, here, after me. This is not the first time. When we read this about Jesus speaking to the brothers beside the Sea of Galilee, this is not the first time that this particular turn of the phrase has been used in the Gospel of Matthew. It's been used once before, and the context was a little different. As a matter of fact, it was kind of the exact inversion of what it is here in verses 18 through 22. In 18 through 22, we've got Jesus, the eternal Son of the living God, the Word become flesh, commanding some of His creatures, hear and come after me. Christ talking about men the first time it's used. It's a man speaking about Christ. And because of that, we naturally understand it different. I think it's an amazing thing because when you see this, it lets you go, oh, there is another facet. And it's one that I didn't consider. And the reason I didn't consider it is because Christ speaking to men and men speaking about Christ are so fundamentally different, the wheels in our head just don't turn the same way. We naturally understand what is said the first time different because it speaks of Christ coming after John and not men coming after Christ. And here's the thing. When it's Jesus saying, hey, buddy, you here after me, that's very different than a man saying Christ comes after me. Because when Christ comes after John... He doesn't come in the same manner that men come after him. Christ is not going to follow John the Baptist around. Christ is not going to be taught by John. Christ is not going to be conformed to John's image. Instead, it looks like this. Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, when being pressed as to who he was... John says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. If you remember when we were doing this a couple of months back, we talked about how there's just, there, there's more weight in, in, if you just translate it straight, when he, when he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who after me comes. He who is coming after me, the exact same command that Jesus gives the apostles. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So unlike Christ, we look at Christ and he says, here, after me, we go, okay, a couple things going to happen. They're going to go wherever he goes. 
And he is going to be teaching them about who he is along the way. And in God's ordained time, the call is going to be effectual and it is going to conform them to him. Namely, first with regeneration at justification. And then through processive sanctification all the way up to the day of their death when they see the Lord face to face. That's almost, if you grew up in church, that should almost be immediate for you. You don't think about it that way when it's John speaking about Jesus because John doesn't do any of that to Jesus. How does it work with them here after me? The one who after me comes is mightier than I. John will later say that it was because the one that comes after him actually came before him. The reality is when we look at it in Matthew chapter 3, we understand that what is being said is that Christ's ministry will follow after John's ministry in time and in the arc of God's redemptive purpose. Doesn't mean that Christ is going to follow John around. Doesn't mean Christ is going to be conformed to John. Quite the contrary. What it does mean is the ministry that Christ has that was ordained by God is going to come after, come behind the ministry of John, the forerunner that came first. And so, I would make the same argument out of Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Does he mean here, follow after me down the beach? Amen. Does he mean here, come and be taught, be conformed to my image? Amen. And what he also means is you and your ministry will come after me and mine in time and in the order of God's redemptive purpose. And the reason we know this is not just because of the hint that we get out of chapter 3. It's because of what Jesus says he's going to do with them when they come here and get behind him. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I love the, in your own time this afternoon, you ought to go look it up in Luke. Because I don't know about me and you, but when you talk about fishing, people say, I love, I love fishing. I'm kind of one of those guys that loves catching. I really am. I know the bank bashers that can sit out there all day and just watch a cork that never moves. Not really my deal, man. It's great when they're hooking sharp hooks and tight lines. Great. In Luke, Jesus says, from now on, I will make you catch men. Once again, this goes back to this idea that the call is all about him and what he's going to do and the fact that the fruit that he has ordained for them to bear will abide. This is going to happen, boys. Peter, Andrew... James, John, leave your boats, leave your father here behind me. Follow me where I go. Be conformed to me because there is something happening after me when I'm not here that I've called you specifically to. They're going to become fishers. They're going to become catchers of men. And the reason we know that it's speaking about the after of God's redemptive purpose is because that will not happen while they are coming after Jesus in the flesh on earth. When he is here walking among them, when they are following after him physically, when they are in the beginning of being conformed to him, 
they will not be fishers of men. As a matter of fact, what they are typically is frustrated. Christ is being a fisher of men. He is drawing crowds. He is dispersing crowds. He is causing people to believe in him. These men are baptizing in his name. They're also going out and having demons tell them no. Instead, they will become what he said that he will make them after his ascension. In John chapter 16, in verses 4 through 11. John 16, verse 4. Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. What an incredible statement. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine after Jesus saying, here, behind me, and you've been doing that for three years, Sometimes behind him walking on the water. Sometimes behind him walking up to see him cast out a demon. Sometimes behind him walking up to see him raise the dead to life. After all of this time, he says, let me tell you something, boys. It's better for you that I go away. It's to your advantage. Why, Lord? Because you're never going to be what I called you to be unless I do. It's better for you. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Amen. Jesus tells them right before he goes. If you're going to see what you were called to see, if you're going to be what you were called to be, there is a necessary component that I have not yet set upon you. And so, your ordained ministry behind me it will follow mine. All of this point in time has been training wheels. Christ's ministry in propitiation is coming to its close on earth. Their ministry in proclamation is just about to begin. They've been told they would be made fishers of men, and it's actually about to happen. In Luke chapter 4, in Luke chapter 4, in verses 16 through 22, um, and it's, it's, it's exactly in the same time frame that we're looking at. This is the last sermon that Jesus preached before he gets ran out of Nazareth. The last one which is the events that happened just before now. He's just been ran out of Nazareth. He's just showed up in Galilee, and he's just calling these guys beside the Sea of Galilee to come be his disciples. And during that sermon in the synagogue at Nazareth, in Luke chapter 4, in verse 16, it says that he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, 
And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In the first sermon that Jesus gives before He's ever called any of His apostles to go be fishers of men one day, He says, let me tell you something, guys. Here's the deal. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And it's upon me for a very particular purpose. Now, there may be all sorts of things that are done with it. There may be all sorts of miracles that are executed. There may be the dead brought to life. There may be sick, healed, demon-oppressed, and possessed, freed. But all of those, all of those activities, all of those happenings, all of those miracles exist in the service of one thing. Because what the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do is not simply to go out and give an exciting show. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim. To proclaim. To speak. The good news to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him, literally in the Greek, to give the gospel. That's what he's doing. They've sent me. To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim the gospel in all of its effect. Which is why when Jesus is preaching, you see him doing it so effectively. And the apostles that the spirit of the Lord is not upon at this time, struggling. But it wouldn't stay that way. Here, behind me. Follow me down the beach. Follow me in what I teach you. Be conformed to me. And then your ministry will follow mine. It'll follow mine. It'll come after mine. And when I go away, it will be to your advantage. Because the spirit that was on me, I will send to you. And it will be on you to the same end goal, to the proclaiming of the gospel in an effectual way so that men, women, and little boys and little girls are born again when they hear it. It's in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the first book, O Theophilus, if you're in the bayou, that's Tofield. <laughs> I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so, when they had come together, and this is, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about what does it mean to follow after point number one. 
It would do the people of God well to follow after wherever Jesus says his presence will be working and be there. It was very clear for these men, stay in Jerusalem and wait. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now guys, we've got some, we have some friends in other churches that have a tendency to abuse this text real bad. I want you to pay attention to the specific manner in which the power is coming upon you. Because you don't just get to read into that whatever you want. It's the same way that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And why would you want it to be any other way? If it was on Jesus for proclaiming, then why wouldn't you want it to be on us for proclaiming? If it was on Jesus so that the poor could hear the gospel, if it was on Jesus so that the blind could recover their sight, if it was upon Jesus so that the captives to their own sin could be set at liberty, then why would you want it to be anything less? The Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus says, here, after me. When my ministry here in this three years on earth is done and is brought to completion by the sacrifice of the cross, the resurrection from the dead, and the ascension to the right hand of the Father on high until the day when my enemies are made a footstool for my feet, after that will come you. After that, I will make you fishers of men. And you will go forth and you will do it. I have chosen you. You didn't choose me. I chose you and I appointed you that you would bear fruit and that your fruit would abide in the boldness of the gospel is knowing that Jesus Christ said, it will return to me that for which I sent it. And you can go out and you say, how does that apply to us? Here's how it applies to us. I want you to notice that Christ, not, not only by the record of, of what, what is written by Luke in Acts, but by his own teaching that Christ said specifically, it's to your advantage that I go away because the helper won't come to you until I go and send him. And then like he's just trying to drive the point home, Christ leaves and he says, okay, I'm ascending to the right hand of the Father and there's going to be some angels here in a minute that tell you that you won't see the Son of Man again until you see him coming back in glory the same way he went. And just like he's driving the point home, he goes, but I'm not going to send the Holy Spirit today. I'm going to let you hang out for a little while. And remember what I said. It's to your advantage that I go. Yours will come after me. And so I'm going to go, and I'm going to let that sink in. I don't know about you, but I need it to sink in sometimes. I'm going to let it sink in. And then on the day of Pentecost, what I promised you three years ago, when I called you away from your nets and your fish scales, 
Remember that day? That day that seems like so far ago after all the hardships and all the trial and all of the me requiring of you things that you know full well that you cannot do. You, you, you remember that day? This day, you become fishers of men. And what empowered them to do so, what empowered them to do so was not the fact that they were able to sit around a campfire and have fish with Jesus. That would have been an awesome thing to do. Man, who, who wouldn't love that? But that's not what made them what they were. It, the fact of the matter that they could tell you what his smile looked like before they died is not what made them fishers of men. The fact that they knew what his robe smelled like after a hot day on the, on the sea, that's not what made them fishers of men. Jesus didn't say that it would be the fact that you got to touch me that would cause you to be something that is sons of thunder and stone that turn the world upside down. What will cause you to do that is that you will have the same spirit in you that I have of me. For the Holy Spirit is my spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the regenerative agent of the gospel. And so when he writes to Titus in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, an apostle writing to a man who's not one, writing to a man who did not spend time with Jesus around a campfire, who did not walk the road to Jerusalem with him, who did not have the sky split on the Damascus road and then Jesus himself spent three years instructing him. When you're talking to a man who wasn't an apostle, who wasn't there and didn't see these things, Paul writes to him in Titus chapter 3 and verse 4 and says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Mount Zion, there is incredible power in that. There's incredible power in that. Because what that means, what that means is that the things that you see being done in Acts are by no means outside of the scope of the Lord's gospel today. They're not. Man, seems like one of kind of the great get out of jail free cards with difficult theology you'll be you know having the kind of coffee table discussion and somebody say well yeah but that was the apostles now look the office of apostle is real and there were 12 of them and there'll never be another one but what you see peter doing at pentecost is not something that is remanded to the office of apostle if it was, no one would be preaching the gospel anymore. This is the thing that makes them fishers of men. This is the thing that no matter how hard the times are, you can always look back and go, well, he called us. 
And he said, come after me. And I didn't even really, I thought I knew what he meant. <laughs> and I did know part of it, but then I figured out a lot more. It turns out this sanctification thing is hard. But he even meant more than that. And so here we are, Mount Zion. We're after him. And praise God, he said, here. And we're after him. And with men, these things are impossible. But with Jesus Christ, when he has seen fit to put the same proclaiming spirit in his people, as he himself wears a mantle <laughs> throughout his ministry, he's going to ask you to do some stuff you can't do. That's okay. We are confident that he is more than capable and willing of doing it. Sons of thunder, stone, men who turn the world upside down, and a former fisher of fish that is going to preach a sermon that sees 3,000 men that just a few weeks before were screaming, crucify him, crucify him, bow their knees and submit to here behind me. Such is the glory of the grace of God in the gospel. We're just a couple of weeks away from chapter 5. And we're going to get behind him. And we're going to let him smash us and trim us and conform us to a mold that Brian Williams does not fit very well in. All for the glory of his grace and for the joy of his people. And so I'll just end this way this morning. I know this is probably a sermon to the church more than it is to the lost, but man, the Lord can do whatever he wants. So if you're here today and you, <laughs> you've never heard the call before, man, I pray today's the day you hear it. And when he says here, Get behind him as fast as you can. As fast as you can. Today be a great day to be born again. Be a great day. Be a great day, oh man, for you to be caught. Let's pray.